The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hey. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to uh, this session, which is going to be a potted history of the Irish pub. Uh, my name is Kieran O'Neill, and I'm Deputy Director of Trinity Longroom Hub, that's Trinity's flagship arts and humanities research institute. My many thanks to the talented TCD trad sock players, Claire, Sarah, Oshin, and Simon, who just played us in, in a remarkable and appropriate style. That was really wonderful, and we're really appreciative uh, of it. Thank you. Um, so we're here to discuss the Irish pub, a much-loved Irish institution currently in crisis and one of our most successful cultural exports. In my own personal five-kilometre lockdown radius here in Dublin can be found some of the finest pubs in Ireland, from Mulligan's and Poolbeg Street to the Gravediggers up the road from me here in Glasnevin. The same thirst that I feel when I gaze longingly at their unnaturally bolted front doors is likely the same thirst that has led hundreds of you here today to consider the history of this great perennial of Irish society. The sense of joyful chaos of the Irish pub is sometimes it sits uncomfortably alongside accusations of its commodification. Scholars of the Irish pub and the priceless crack that can be had inside it see an existential threat in the growth of the so-called Irish pub concept abroad, a flat pack replicant and franchised Irish pub experience created by the triad of Diageo Guinness, Tourism Ireland and Falta Ireland. The supposedly authentic pub experience that the Irish pub concept replicates is one of the top reasons cited by tourists for visiting Ireland. It's the leading tourist destination in Ireland is also the for-profit Guinness storehouse visited by 1.7 million people in 2019. Back in Ireland, the pub itself is endangered, it seems, by the rise of at-home alcohol consumption, tighter regulation and demographic change. And it's unquestionably in numerical decline. In 1924, there were more than 16,000 pubs with liquor licenses in Ireland. In the Republic between 05 and 2017, that figure uh, has fallen by a further 20% down to just over 7,000 licensed pubs, a substantial number of which, one feels, may not reopen their doors post-COVID. Just last weekend, the Irish Independent noted a fall of 42 pubs to just five in the town of Kilchimaw in County Mayo. And yet the Irish pub is considered by Irish people to be the cultural equivalent of the Viennese coffee house, a theatre space, a therapy space, a repository of communal knowledge, a forum, for debate and gossip. The public house has served in Irish history variously as a makeshift morgue, a uh, an, an occasional courthouse, or a meeting house for would-be Irish revolutionaries. So to mind this phenomenon, today I'm joined by four brilliant researchers, each of whom will speak for nine minutes and in the order that I'm going to introduce them. And they'll explore a different dimension of the Irish pub, either in reality or as a cultural construct. I'd like to remind everybody who's joined us that this event is being streamed live on Facebook and will thus be recorded. If audience members would like to ask a question, and we really do encourage that, 
please do use the Q&A panel at the bottom of your screen. So our first speaker today will be Dr. Kiron Wallace, he's Deputy Director of Beyond 2022, Ireland's Virtual Record Treasury. But he's here today as a historian of Dublin and one with a real interest in social history and political cartoons. Just after Kiron, we'll listen, for, listen to Moon Young Hong, a PhD candidate in the School of English in her fourth year. Her research focuses on everyday spaces in the plays of Tom Murphy, and it's funded by the Irish Research Council. After Moon Young Hong, we'll have Jack Sheehan, a writer, photographer, and PhD candidate in the School of Histories and Humanities and from Dublin. He works on international political connections in Irish folk music in the 1950s and the 1960s. And lastly, we're going to hear from Trish Murphy, an accredited psychotherapist, mediator and trainer. She's the acting director of the student counselling services here in Trinity College, Dublin, and she grew up in a small pub in the west of Ireland. So over to you, Kieran. Off you go. Thank you. Thanks very much, Kieran, And hi, everyone. Um, the pub is an unchanging constant in Irish life, as Kieran has said. But can it ever recover from the repeated lockdowns that we're enduring at the moment? So I want to look briefly at some questions like, was the traditional pub ever as traditional as we think? And to maybe examine some pubs from about a century ago to see what has changed and can this tell us anything about pubs post lockdown? Uh, first, just a thought about the traditional pub. So whether it's a, a cosy country bar with a fire and a dog sitting at the door or a busy city bar with standing room only, the pub is reassuringly reliable. When you return to your home place, you want the pub to be the same as you remember it. And if you visit Ireland for the first time, you have an image of a traditional pub that you want to visit so you know when you're in the right place or when you're in the wrong place. So to delve into the phenomenon of the Irish pub, I think we need to visit a few, which is only fair. So let me take you virtually on a short pub crawl through a couple of cartoons. Now, I have an interest in political cartoons and social cartoons, and they're a useful way of looking at social history. So even though a cartoon isn't true or accurate, the joke or the idea of a cartoon only works because of shared assumptions. So you, and these are often assumptions that are never written down anywhere. You get the joke because you share the same assumptions as the other readers of the joke or the cartoonist who has produced it or the, the newspaper that has, that has printed it. Um, so I want to look at uh, a, a small number of cartoons, two from an Irish, uh, Irish cartoon magazines and one from an American publication, all from the early 20th century, back when traditional pubs were traditional pubs. We're looking at a cartoon from the Leprechaun Cartoon Monthly, which ran from 1905 to 1915. That was aimed at like white collar, lower middle class nationalist readership. The Dublin Opinion Magazine, which ran from the 1920s to the 1960s, aimed at kind of a new suburban middle class in the Irish Free State. And then we'll turn to Puck Magazine, which was like an American version of Punch Magazine in London with those same kind of conservative, slightly establishment views of the world. Now the pub in the first cartoon, let me just share here, one second. <clears throat> Got my two screens open here. The pub in the first cartoon um, is, uh, it's actually not really a cartoon. This is an advertising uh, uh, image drawn by the cartoonist to show kind of an idealized version of a pub. So welcome to Nagel's on North Earl Street. It's August, 1906. This is a real traditional Dublin pub. It's lunchtime, so we may have some trouble getting a seat, but while we're waiting, let's do a bit of people watching. So Nagel's is a good, respectable house, the kind of place you can meet your friends and have a decent conversation. So as you can see, it has a very diverse clientele or what passes for diversity in 1906 anyway. Um, you can tell them all by their hats. 
So do you see the tall lad at the counter just ordering now, talking to the barman? So he's a retired officer with the Southern Irish horse, works now in the Bank of Ireland, has an accent like cut glass. That's probably maybe why the barman is struggling to keep a, a straight face. Family comes from Tipperary, but the accent is straight out of Sandhurst, by way of Rathmines, I reckon. The two sitting beside him, chatting in the centre, they come in every Friday in here. The one on the left, we're in the Trilby. Um, so he's enjoying his dinner. He's an accounts clerk in the Dublin Bread Company around the corner on Sackville Street. Lives out in Drumcondra now with the wife and a few small kids. They met through Irish classes in the Gaelic League. So if you get talking to him in the pub, he'll likely to try out a bit of Irish on you and test your national credentials. Talking to him, his mate in the bowler hat, he's an expert judge of good whiskey, if you know what I mean. Um, he, they come in, he comes in every Friday. He has a job in Dublin Corporation. Um, I'm not sure how much work gets done in his office afternoons on a Friday, but he's a very good fun guy, knows a fund of stories, knows everyone in town, great crack on an evening out if you get talking to him. Um, lives off Cable Street. His wife runs a little tobacco shop off the Cable Street there. The young fellow beside them in the flat cap, now you wouldn't usually see him in here, but he normally drinks down with the five lamps. His dad works in the docks, but he got an apprenticeship as an electrician in the tram company, so the family are clearly moving up in the world. So it's a good, reliable pub, Nagels. Everyone's well behaved, everyone's wearing a hat, nobody's smoking, no gurriers, no drunks, no musicians, and no women. So let's maybe try somewhere else. Aspects of the traditional Irish pub have always been changing, evolving. So here you see two cartoons reflecting attitudes to women frequenting bars in the early 20th century. In the cartoon on the left, the young officious uh, uh, barman, he's pointing to a sign saying, no ladies supplied at this bar. And as it says in the caption, the stout lady um, replies, we don't want any ladies, young man. We want two tailors of malt or two glasses of whiskey. So the joke is kind of on the officious young barman, but clearly the two women are not being portrayed in a particularly flattering light either. The message is clearer in the cartoon on the right from, gosh, it's almost uh, what, 15 years later in the Dublin Opinion. Here, the woman, rather bedraggled woman, goes in and she asks for two glasses of malt, please. And the barman says, why two? There's only one of you. And she said, the other lady is lying down outside. So the joke being obviously that, well, a lady wouldn't be lying down outside. But the cumulative assumption here is that women shouldn't be in bars. It's not the right place for it. It's the friction that makes the, the, the comedy, if you want to call it comedy. Um, and, uh, but in fact, the world was beginning to change already. Um, there were snugs for women. Women were gradually being permitted into the pub world as the century progressed. And by the 1970s, it only took 50 years, um, most pubs had a select lounge where women were actually welcomed with their wages and their spending money. But it was rare, but not impossible by the 1970s still to find a men-only bar in Dublin. So let's move on to another bar. <clears throat> let's go to, um, this is late night in a theatre bar. So in this original cartoon below, there was a sort of a, a dog rule poem joking about the clients that go to a theatre bar late at night. But I haven't shown that here, but it's late night. The regular bars have all shut, but the theatres had a late licence. So the crowd had poured in there from the other pubs. Again, the customers here are all men and they're all wearing hats. So we can see who's who. We can see a young rake wearing a cap, the seasoned drinker in his trilby or his bowler hat or the toff wearing his top hat in at the back. Now they're all a bit sozzled. Many are smoking and it has a familiar look of any busy bar towards closing time. A number of women do appear, but they're not wearing hats, but they have very elaborate hairdos. These are all the bar staff. And because it's a theatre bar, it caters to couples attending the theatre. So having female staff makes it a more safe space, a respectable place for, you know, uh, girlfriends, wives, women to go with their accompanying men folk for a drink after the theatre performance. 
but by this hour that we're seeing it here, all the respectable females have long since headed back home to the suburbs, leaving the place to late night refugees from regular drinking hours. This one is different to the first cartoon because this is an actual satirical cartoon. This is spoofing the customers who are there as opposed to trying to sell Nagel Bar with its nice idealized version of its clientele. So maybe time for one more, one more final stop because it is lunchtime. We shouldn't make a pub crawl last too long. This time we're going to crawl right across the Atlantic to see how the future might look from 1906 and 1908. So let's try in here. This is Mrs. Gilligan's bar somewhere in New York. It's 1908 and we're inside the mind of cartoonist Harry Grant Dart. Now, poor Harry, he worried about the changing role of women in society. And he became increasingly vexed at the uh, prospect of women smoking. So here we are in his nightmare imaginings. You have a pub full of women. Again, the diversity is shown by their headgear. We see a widow in her veil. We see respectable matrons, society ladies, small girls. And horror of horrors, they're all smoking except the two small kids. So while we're not in Ireland, it is clearly an Irish pub. We can tell that by some of the decor on the walls. But the threat to traditional roles and values is clear. Women fill the bar. This will be the end not only of womanhood as we know it, but also of the traditional pub. So both uh, to kind of summarize this very short uh, uh, run through, pubs are both private and public spaces. They can include and they can exclude depending on the circumstances and the time. The traditional pub, in fact, is always under threat, under threat from outsiders such as women um, or from new technology like televisions, phones, coffee machines or legislations like the smoking ban or more recently from the prolonged closure during the triple lockdowns of the current pandemic. But the pub, like the people who enjoy it, always seems to adapt somehow to survive and to bounce back. So for me, the real issue for our next seminar is whatever happened to all those hats? Thanks, Kieran. Um, thanks so much, Kara. Um, I'll just share my screen. See. Um, yes, well, thanks so much for having me today. Um, as you can see in my background, I chose the interior of Kennedy's pub um, just down on Westland Row. Um, Professor Terence Brown, who was one of our lecturers, used to take his students after class every week, insisting that he only drank one pint uh, because two pints were never enough. Um, and I very much associate the pub with this weekly ritual, um, often where students would have heated discussions, more so than in the classroom, um, and forge a sense of camaraderie and friendship. As far as I'm aware, Professor Brown has been doing this for years, um, which became its own tradition in the school. My talk today is looking at the spatial dynamics of the pub, examining the ways in which this homely social space has been used to shape and produce certain narratives about Ireland. Coming from a theatre background, I'm looking at what it means to stage the pub in Irish theatre and what a theatrical lens can say about the pub. So first, the nature of the pub is that it is situated in between the private and public, as Kieran mentioned. The word pub itself, a shortened version of the public house, is in a sense an oxymoron. It combines contrary terms, public, defined as communal and open, and house, often concerning the private and individual. Perry Sher describes the Irish pub as a third place that is not work and not home, typified by their democratic, informal, and ubiquitous nature. The idea that the pub is liminal, situated in between the private and public, is something I will keep coming back to. Another important aspect to bear in mind is that while brewing practices go back to 4000 BC, the pub as we know it today was invented much later in the 17th century. It is very much a modern invention, even though we associate it with Irish tradition. 
As both Kieran's mentioned in the introduction, um, in the age of global capitalism, the pub is at the center of Irish tourism and trade. Mark McGovern argues that the pub is an example of, quote, cultural commodification and consumption of the imagined ethnic identity drawn from a pool of pre-existent signs and symbols, end quote. So if we consider the pub and the theater as a kind of cultural industry, uh, places of entertainment bound by monetary exchange, not only do they both participate in this cultural commodification, but I think they also offer possibilities where these identities can be challenged, contested, and reformulated, precisely because it is a space that is liminal, performative, and playful. According to Chris Morash and uh, Sean Richards, Irish theatrical realism relied on the audience's sense of place that defined their Irishness to the point of abstraction. Irish theater used certain staple Irish spaces, the recognizable West and peasant kitchens that the audience were comfortable with. The pub fits very well into this category. And while Irish theater participated in this making of this sense of place, it equally offered a way to negotiate this established conventions. In the examples that I will show you, uh, you'll notice how the Irish sense of place played out in Irish theater history. Um, yeah, in 1907, Lady Gregory told Yeats after the second act of Sing's Playboy that the, uh, the play broke up in disorder at the word shift. As you may know, Playboy takes place in a Shabine in Mayo. Christie, who is a murderer on the run, a liar and a good storyteller, becomes the town hero. Piggin, the publican daughter, falls in love with Christie and portraying her and the women in the town as people with desire went against the morality of the nationalist audience and their image of Ireland. Arthur Griffiths said the play was a vile and inhuman story told in the foulest language we have ever listened to from a public platform. While as Kuypert remarks, when it was finally staged in the West of Ireland, the audience were bored rather than annoyed saying that you can see the like of that carry on on any day in the pub. The discrepancy between the projected image and the lived experience of the pub can be observed here. Uh, similarly in O'Casey's Plan of the Stars set around the 1916 rising, the audience were outraged by what the play had to say about their Irishness. In the second act, you see the similar trope, kind of mass gathering, a fight happening, while Patrick Pierce's speeches are delivered outside. But this time you have Rosie, a prostitute in the pub as well. The pub was often associated with degeneracy, and so you can see from the words of Sheila Humphreys how the play was offensive. That was the main objection. <coughs> to bring an unfolded Republican flag, which we worshiped at that time into a public house. In Tom Murphy's conversations on a homecoming, <clears throat> Michael, a returned emigre, meets his old friends in the pub called the White House, where the owner looks like John F. Kennedy. We get the sense that Irish culture has been eroded by Americanization. The play exemplifies the disillusionment, the hopelessness of the Irish situation, and again challenges the idea of Irishness. Tom, who is the cynical character, criticizes the owner JJ that Ireland hopped up on that America-wrapped bandwagon, so-called idealism, and that we are such ridiculous race that even our choice of assumed images is quite arbitrary. So there's a kind of self-critique uh, of Irish culture, which shows the importance of conversations and negotiations in the everyday realm. Despite or perhaps because of these critical conversations, the fact that Murphy's play resonated with prisoners when Druid did their tour is fascinating. Uh, one prisoner said, about after 10 minutes, I felt myself really involved personally in the play. 
The pub scene was one that I'm no stranger to, as I'm a man that likes the odd drink and a chat. By that I mean there are such old pubs like the one portrayed in the set construction down where I come from. Similar conversations to that in the play are still going strong, and many's the night I would sit by the fire and listen to all the stories and jokes. The power of having a chat is perhaps most politically realized in Owen McCafferty's Quietly. Ian and Jimmy meet in the pub to talk about what happened when they were teenagers 36 years ago. Ian, who was a member of the Ulster Volunteer Force, threw a bomb into the pub, killing Jimmy's father, who was watching a football match. The pub becomes a place scarred by its past and memories. Equally, the play hints at the possibility of reconciliation and peace through these characters in an ordinary pub. So this quote is when Jimmy imagines the last moment of his father's death just before the bombing. I always like to think that it ended with a joke and a laugh, men having a drink to help them ease the burden of the daily grind. And on top of that, Belfast in those days, a few drinks, a release, maybe like they were in their own cave or something, protected from all the fucking nonsense going on in the outside world. I think this resonates differently in the context of the pandemic, um, but the sense that people regard the pub as a cave, as a sanctuary, seems still pertinent. Um, it must be said, however, that in all the place, the women are marginalized, excluded, or appear as prostitutes. Valerie Hay even describes the pub as female substitute because it offers plenitude, availability, warmth, food, and companionship, the servicing of male needs. Um, in McPherson's play, uh, another example where people gather and talk about their personal experiences, Valerie, who is a blow-in from Dublin and the only woman in the pub, has lost her daughter. However, by sharing their private matters in a public setting, the characters are able to come to terms with their past, their traumas, and feel a sense of belonging and consolation. In Murphy's conversations, Peggy, Tom's girlfriend, is excluded in the masculine space of the pub. However, she sings all in the April evening at the end, and the pub becomes sullen. In both the weird and conversations, it is the women who change the pub from a mere hullabaloo into something more spiritual and something more meaningful, which is in itself suggesting a traditional understanding of gender. Um, in Sing's Playboy, uh, Pegin is neither the ideal feminine figure, nor is Christy the macho man, and we see the performative aspect of gender at play. The portrayal of women in the pub has been problematic, as Kieran Wallace before me also pointed out, and it is important to consider the gendered aspect of the pub and how different productions and performances could intervene in subverting these representations and tropes. I want to end uh, by saying that the trope of the pub continues. Uh, once the musical and uh, Two Pints are recent examples of cultural commodification, as well as engagement with the community and ways of opening up genuine conversations. Uh, when the pubs and theater open again, we'll see the pub on the stage again. Thank you. Right, well, firstly, I just wanted to thank uh, the Trinity Long Hub for inviting me. It's a real genuine pleasure to be on a panel with so many really talented people. Um, I have to admit, when I was first asked to do this, um, my first thought was, well, I, I don't work on pubs, and my research looks at political links in Irish folk music in the 50s and 60s. But then I realized that saying this was a bit like saying, oh, no, I don't work on forests. No, no, I work on trees, you see, because pubs are all over my work. Um, beyond being where music is actually performed or enjoyed or recorded, 
pubs are the place that your brain pictures when you listen to something like Seven Drunken Nights or All From Me Grog or Whiskey in the Jar or even the least imaginatively titled Clancy Brothers number Beer, Beer, Beer. So rather than trying to give an exhaustive history in nine minutes, instead, I just want to look at a few moments in time, a few strange artifacts uh, to see if they tell us anything interesting. And the nice thing about my research is I mention a lot of songs. So if you get bored and drift off, you can just put them on and enjoy that instead. A lot of the speakers before me have talked about authenticity, and I think it's a good thing to keep in mind with what I'm about to say next. So let's think about three pubs, a few songs, and a handful of moments in history. First of all, the White Horse Tavern at the corner of Hudson and 11th in Greenwich Village in New York City. Now, this is not strictly an Irish pub, but if you'd arrived in the door in the 1960s to see Michael Harrington and the Catholic workers at one table, Democratic Party politicians Daniel Patrick Moynihan holding court at another, and the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Macon singing in the back room, you could be forgiven for thinking that it was. And this is where Macon and the Clancy's cut their teeth and built the sound that sold all those records in the US and then back home. Now the way the Clancy started is kind of a funny one. An heiress to one of the wealthiest families in world history, the Guggenheims, recruited Liam Clancy from Ireland to join his brothers in the States. And she also introduced him to Tommy Macon and bankroll the whole enterprise. According to Liam Clancy himself, quote, she brought the Clancy's and Macon's together, then started the record company, Tradition Records, which would be the launching pad for Paddy, Tom, Tommy Macon, and myself as the Clancy brothers and Tommy Macon. She introduced us to Josh White, whose managers would guide us onto the world stages. If you wanted to be really glib, you could say they were the first manufactured Irish boy band. But you would want to be very glib indeed, because the genesis of Macon and Clancy is more complicated than that. There's a video, which I don't have time to show you, but hopefully you can watch in your own time. It's a special for Chicago Public Television recorded in 1962. The Clancy's and Tommy Macon appear in a perfect little Irish pub, its location unknown. Since a few years into their career, and the Macon and Clancy style is already in place. Those Aaron Jumpers, Brennan on the Moor, Elder Donahue, the cobbler, well-known standards and fragments half-remembered and reconstructed from songbooks, all given a new energy and an attractive sheen that made the pub their only logical setting. In a sense, this mystery Irish pub they perform in could be any Irish pub. Their set even includes Liam Clancy performing a section of Robert Emmett's speech from the dock that rolls straight into the rising of the moon. Now, Macon and the Clancy's created their sound from Irish raw materials manufactured in the factories of American pubs, coffee houses, and venues, and then re-imported it back to Ireland to be heard and enjoyed in pubs up and down the country. Liam Clancy once said that he was hesitant to tour back home because, as he put it, who would want to hear them sing Roddy McCorley in Ireland? And the answer was, of course, absolutely loads of people. The White Horse Tavern, for reference, has spent a long time dining out on its reputation, and it is, by all accounts, a shell of its former self. It was bought a few years back by a group that included a notorious slumlord and a gentleman that I'm sure none of you have ever heard of called Anthony Scaramucci. So let's go to another pub, not too long after, and one that many of you have probably been in. Well, Dunahue's on Bagot Street got a reputation for being a music pub in the early 60s, partially because the Dubliners would play there. And in May 1965, a student filmmaker called Kevin Sheldon produced an experimental, unfinished film called O'Donoghue's Opera. It begins on an average busy night in the pub, with pints being poured and music playing. The Dubliners, the Green Sisters, and Seamus Ennis all feature. 
The Green Sisters, in fact, sing the Merry Plowboy, a version of which by Dermot O'Brien would spend six weeks at the top of the Irish charts the very next year. Now, what begins almost flying on the wall becomes folklore fantasia, as one of the songs, The Night Before Larry Was Stretched, takes life, with Ronnie Drew in the title role. The songs are old, clientele mostly young and cool, with the Dubliners uniting the two. And this is not unedited documentary footage that allows us to look directly into the past. In some ways, it's more interesting than that. It's a piece of avant-garde art that shows us a fantastical version of what the artist imagined O'Donoghue's to be a space of historical magic. Now, if that seems a bit out there, let's come back down to earth with our final pull, the Bogside Inn in Derry, just a few steps down the road from Free Derry Corner. This was the place where much of the planning was done for the 1969 Liberation Flat, an event held by the people of the Bogside just days after the first deployment of soldiers to the streets of Derry. And guess who plays at the festival? None other than Tommy Macon and a few lads called the Dubliners. And interestingly, Ortiz Wanderley Wagon was also in attendance. This was a way of bringing the music that was happening in the pubs and houses out onto the streets. According to some sources, Tommy Macon performed Four Green Fields for the first time at that event. And the Bogside Inn would be important again in 1973. An American documentary called No Go, directed by Richard Shades, told the recent history of the Bogside and the Cregan. For obvious reasons, much of the footage is recreated using actors, giving it a different, but still sim similarly semi-real feel to O'Donoghue's opera. Now the music for the film was recorded in the Bogside Inn by local musicians, many of whom were also real life political participants in the drama being depicted. Songs like The Bogside Man, The Socialist Republic, and the satirical ballad of Jack Lynch were explicitly Republican and could be fairly described as writ from the headlines. In the film itself, a children's choir sing Four Green Fields as if it were a traditional tune, rather than something written only a few years before. So what am I trying to say with all of this? Well, okay, imagine yourself at a session. It's the year 2025. You're in a pub that looks old, but it was actually built in 2018. A group of musicians gets up to play and they're good. Soon enough, everyone is up and singing along. They start with a few fairly uncontroversial ones. Rocky Road to Dublin, or the Black Velvet Band, maybe the Rising of the Men. No one complains too much when they play the Foggy Jew. But as soon as Take It Down from the Mast gets an airing, you lose all the Finnegalers. And the Finnefallers go back to the bar as soon as the Patriot game appears. And it only gets stickier from there. By the time you get to the men behind the wire, half the people are muttering and restless, and the other half are having the time of their life. A real-time historical argument about legitimacy is happening in front of you through the medium of pub music. And the whole time, you can't stop thinking the convincingly old and shabby room where this is all taking place was a lifestyle sport until a few years ago. My point here is that these struggles and debates that we're having today over authenticity and legitimacy were what makes a real Irish pub. And the debates that have been had over this decade of centenary, they don't just happen in the letters pages of History Ireland or the Irish Times, they happen everywhere. And one of the best ways to see that in action is by going to your local pub and waiting for a sing song to break out. And of course, if you think what I'm saying is all nonsense, that's fair enough. You're of course more than welcome to get up and sing something different. Thank you. So I think that um, I'm next up. And um, 
I, I don't have research, but I have life experience. Um, and so what I thought I'd do is I'd share that with you. So um, I grew up in a, a pub, which was actually a very small hotel um, in the North, North Kerry border. And um, I think what I have to say about this is many things. And I want to talk to you about the skills I learned and how incredibly useful they are for life how I wanted my kids to work in pubs so that I could transfer those skills on to them, but also how it, growing up in a pub influenced who I am and what I do. So uh, back, um, I don't want to reveal my age, I wonder do I have to do that? Okay, so I do remember that the pub was the centre of life. So in our small town, which was on the road from Shannon, Limerick, on the way to Killarney, we had busloads of American tourists for couple of decades, you know, maybe sort of 70s, um, late 60s. And I had mad red curly hair. And all the bus tours would stop for soup and sandwiches as they tend to do. And they would all take pictures of me as an authentic Irish child. Sometimes my dad used to ask me to take my sandals off to pretend I didn't have any. And um, so I felt like, you know, very young, I was a tourist ad for board Falta. Honestly, uh, I was also born in St. Patrick's Day, so that helped build that little uh, identity I had at the time. We had the Rosa Tralee Festival that went on in Tralee, which, believe it or not, was incredibly glamorous. Beehive hairstyles and lots of nylon. And my job in those years was to hold the ashtrays because absolutely everyone smoked and everybody tried to get in to have a look at these stunning women. And then there was the uh, Bachelor Festival in Ballybunion which was not glamorous at all, um, but which caused huge uh, mayhem and ruckus um, in the town because they stopped in every single pub on the way um, because that's what you did at the time. Um, and I do remember um, going back to college in Cork and uh, I brought a bachelor home that evening and wrote a note on the table for my mother saying bachelor in bed upstairs, goodbye. And, you know, this was the sort of kind of slightly crazy uh, life that went on. Um, but I didn't even know that this was abnormal, that I would stand at my front door and I would watch the world take place outside. And it really did. And at that time, bands that everybody's been talking about used to travel around Ireland. Um, there would be a gig someplace up the street and they would all stay in our place. They would be breakfast and lunch as opposed to bed and breakfast. And one of my experiences at the time, because I used to have to make the beds on a Sunday, um, was that uh, these gorgeous people in their, uh, at the time, shiny platform shoes um, would come down the stairs the following day looking pasty faced and thin and, you know, looking like they needed some sunshine. So it was a very interesting thing about fame. There was a lot of fame uh, for those people at the time. Um, but I suppose one of the central pieces about the pub is the art of conversation. And we've talked about this a little, but for me, it was more than just the possibility of conversation that went on. It was the power of conversation, the power of conversation to change people's lives, to create different views. And I felt that that is what the pub offered for us and probably still does to a lesser extent. Um, so I'm going to take you through some of those major conversations we had. Um, the, some of you won't remember this, but I was working in Dublin at the time of the AIDS crisis. I was working in the prisons at the time, so I was in the thick of it. And when I would go home, I would always start conversations about this. And it created huge views, lots of fears, lots of ideas, and probably instigated talk about sex 
that had never happened before in country Ireland in, in a real way. Um, it was really how um, contraception and particularly condoms were actually accepted. And my dad used to not let me start talking about that until everybody had a few drinks. Um, because he feel that, you know, things could go anywhere and people would think it was a kind of a place with a strange reputation. But it really helped, I think, that the, these conversations really helped people to gain an understanding and empathy and a wider picture of what was going on. Um, the other things that happened at the time, and I, you know, there was a lot of talk about contraception. We didn't have any in Ireland. Um, a lot of it was under the table. But I remember one evening in the bar, and my mother and her friends were sitting along one corner, like in some of the images we just saw. And I was writing something for the Well Woman Clinic on menopause. And I was asking all these women about their sex lives and their first sexual experience. And they were horrified and delighted, right? You know, several gin and tonics in. And I think it was probably the first time any of those women ever spoke about it. And some of um, the shame and the difficulties and things that they had experienced. Um, and I could see the release it was in actually talking about these things. And I could see my dad and the men across the counter listening in while pretending not to. Um, I mean, just incredibly powerful experiences um, that you just had to be in the room in to, to pick up these experiences. Um, and one of the other ones I'd like to talk about is uh, when Bishop Eamon Casey, who was our hero in Kerry, and he drove a Mercedes, he was so cool. And when it was discovered that he had a child, I, I remember the dawning of the fall of, of the Catholic Church and the challenge to that was it really happened in that moment. And I suppose there was, you know, I was surprised at the hurt that it caused. I was surprised at how much pain people experienced around that. And then how gradually people began to talk about it and filter it and humanize it and understand it. Um, but it was it was like, you know, having your finger on a pulse of something that I might otherwise not have had. So very, very powerful. And then, of course, there's politics. Um, and my dad would always, you know, he would have a very strict rule about politics. You know, there's a certain amount of drink that you cannot then talk politics because something would happen. So he was very clear about that. You were put outside the door if you brought up politics too late at night. Um, but also there was um, an incredible air of community around it, as everybody has talked about. Um, and in our place, there was this sentence that everybody waited to hear. Um, Would you like to stay for one quiet one ourselves? To be invited into the inner sanctum at two o'clock in the morning, sit around the fire with a, a hot whiskey. And in my family, that's where all our important conversations happened around the fire, two o'clock in the morning. And I'm one of those people who likes to go to bed early. So I used to be wrecked trying to stay awake long enough to hear whatever the important news of the day was. But, but I was, like the other people wanted to be part of that. And it was oh, fantastic. And to be invited in on Christmas day behind closed doors, that was, you know, absolutely fabulous. I have to say that Christmas day has never been the same for me since. Um, but just to talk about some of the, the major things. Um, I learned how to listen. I learned how to let people tell the story. I learned how to draw them out. Um, and I think that has never left me. Um, I'm, I'm an agony aunt for the Irish Times now. And I know that from when I was knee high, that's where I learned that skill, was behind the bar, waiting to hear the story and then drawing out what the possibilities were. Um, 
I think also it's why I became a psychotherapist, you know, talk therapy. You know, a couple of people have mentioned the therapeutic aspect of the pub. It is absolutely true. You know, you're accepted. Everybody has all the time in the world. They will wait. Um, and whatever happens, you will be accepted. Um, you might be derided for your views and, you know, whatever else. And even if you get thrown out, you'll probably be invited back if you're, if you're good enough to apologize. So it's a very interesting community where people can be accepted. Um, no matter what they represent, they can be accepted there. So I'd like to talk about some of the skills, that the core skills that I learned that I think are incredibly useful. My dad would come in to me and he'd say, Pat's any chance you could rustle up, you know, 52 sandwiches and some soup. And I'd say, okay, right, no bother. Um, and it was very interesting because I still think I'm better at cooking for 20 than I am for two. Um, but you know, that ability not to be freaked, just go ahead, whatever you have and do it. Um, I think huge skills of ne negotiation and conflict management. Um, later on, I worked, as I said, I worked in prisons and I remember standing in a cell with a man who had just, uh, he had just had a visit and his wife had told him she was having a baby with another man. And he was absolutely dying to hit somebody. And I knew that I could talk him down. I knew that it would be all right. I never doubted it for one second because I had practiced that for so much of my life. Um, and it's an incredible skill. So I, I traveled a lot on my own. I was never afraid because I always had the sense that whatever the situation was, I would be able to handle it because of those innate skills I had picked up and learned. Um, I think um, customer service and entrepreneurship is a skill you pick up from being in the bar. Um, I traveled on my own um, when I was about 19 um, to a kibbutz in Israel and I opened a pub in a bomb shelter, um, which I didn't think anything unusual about at the time, you know, but now that I look back on it, I think that was, you know, pretty, pretty cool thing to do. Um, I also think that there's something about appreciation of community that having the pub at the center of life um, really, really does for us. And um, the people who are not acceptable, people who are you know, serious drinkers, um, they are very gently dealt with in a community pub. You know, I remember you know, somebody being told, I think you've had enough now, with, and, and getting somebody else to take them home, making sure they get into their house. You know, and yet knowing that they could come back the following day, I think I think those kind of things might be getting a bit lost. We're very quick now to condemn people to something. Um, I also um, one of the things I want to say is somebody brought it up. There is a sacredness now attached to the Irish pub. I don't know if you've ever gone into a pub around five o'clock in the afternoon. It's quiet. People are watching pints settle or sugar dissolving in their cappuccinos. And you can feel the reverence, you know, it's not always the busy, busy place, but there's something quite beautiful and settling and acceptable about that. You know, the sun, if it ever comes, is slanting in the window. I really, really miss that because whenever I need peace, I probably will go to a pub with a newspaper in the late afternoon and nobody's ever going to find me. And there is something about that that I, I think we miss and I think that we absolutely need. Um, but the most important thing is that you can go to a pub, sit at the bar, you need to sit at the bar because otherwise you might get stuck. 
and you never know what conversation you're going to have. You never know who you're going to meet. Um, you never know what might start and what might, might go. And I do remember being at home, going out in the evening into the bar and waiting to see what would happen. You know, knowing there might be a conversation that might trigger something and just the excitement that of what that might be and where it might take you. Um, and I, I, I think that's a glorious aspect of Irish life. I think that's why we love conversation. Um, I actually think it's why we make very good therapists, maybe not very good clients, but I, I, I think we, you know, we, we have that in us. And I think it is created in that tradition and that background um, of the pub, of a place where everybody's accepted and can be listened to and, um, and held really sacredly in that. Now, I was going to, to finish with a quote from John B. Keane, who was my neighbour up the road, um, but I wasn't so sure how people would approve of it. He did say you can't drink in moderation and he would never recommend it. <laughs> he always said that he thinks that, you know, that, that you, you, you know, that moderation is something we should never aim for. Um, and I, you know, having been in his pub many, many times, um, I think it's the opposite. I think his was the centre of stories and chat and theatre and um, all that went with it. Um, and it was an example for all of us um, in that area. So just to say, I'm delighted that at some point it's going to open again. My twin brother, my younger brother, both work in pubs. Um, it's essential to my life. And I think that we should support um, our pubs the way they are and try and keep the essence of Irish life in, in that aspect. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Trish, and thanks to everybody for giving us such a, a great tour. I really enjoyed that. And I'll take the spirit of John B and, and say that I'll not so much try to moderate this chat from here on out until um, uh, about one o'clock or sorry, about uh, two o'clock. But I'll, I'll try and listen, as Trish indicates, and see if I can draw these speakers out a little more. And to do that, what I will ask uh, our fairly large audience to do is just type your questions into the chat function. We already have lots and people have been answering busily in there, but I'm sure there are lots more. I have so many of them, uh, but I'm going to leave them for a second and begin uh, with some general questions that have come from our, our live audience here today. I thought really interesting one that came in from Edward Denniston. Um, it's more of a comment really, but I think it, it prompts us to think about something which has got to do with change. Uh, and also what function the pub has uh, right now, uh, in a sense, that, that isn't given to us by other institutions. So what, what Edward said was, what are the distinct differences between the Irish pub and the Irish cafe, for example, in terms of what each does and doesn't do for the punter is, what does the pub give us that the cafe doesn't, I suppose, uh, apart from the obvious answer, which is the, the opportunity to become inebriated maybe, but but it, what else is it giving us? So, so uh, Jack, I might just throw that to you first, and, and if anybody else wants to come in on it, please, please do. Uh, well, the, uh, the phrase Irish cafe just uh, unfortunately puts me in mind of the cafe bars that uh, Michael McDool proposed over a few years ago. Yeah. Um, this may sound very obvious, but cafes don't open late. Uh, and I think there is a whole, like, I think just because evening culture is pub culture in Ireland, because there's basically nothing else you can go to beyond a certain point, that may seem a very reductive answer but it's the first thing that comes to mind yeah i think we, we maybe just don't get excited about the idea of an irish cafe it doesn't speak to us to the same extent uh, kieran wallace any thoughts on that i 
don't I mean I enjoy cafes a lot but I don't know that you'd go to meet a bunch of friends and spend the evening in a cafe you might go to a cafe where you're gathering and then move on to a pub but you're going to settle into a pub I think for the night and it's just a different thing yeah it's a good question actually I wonder could you actually make a list or is it just like Dietricia saying it's something kind of is there a mood that's kind of indefinable that's in a pub um maybe it's not maybe it's not good to try and define the difference too much because it's the essence of the pub I, for me yeah i just think it's a case of i i wouldn't imagine going to a cafe and settling in for an evening and seeing who'd wander in and then who wanders out and that kind of passing parade of life whereas in the pub you expect that so it's that's what it's evolved into being i think yeah 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 trish i mean i, I was really taken with your your ode to the pub experience towards the end it was really wonderful note to end on but it got me thinking about what has changed in in terms of the pub over the last kind of 10 20 years and you, how you've kind of watched that change unfurl and i was trying to think what what defines the pub and it relates back to the first question that we've asked and i always think of the pub as being a place where it's really not acceptable to have notions you know that great irish phrase have notions about yourself. I think the pub is sort of an anti-notion space in a way. It's the opposite of that. Um, and I wonder what you think of that or as somebody who's had a sort of a lifelong relationship to the pub, um, have you any comment on it? Well, I, I think one of the beautiful things about a pub is nobody knows what work you do. Nobody's gonna ask you. So, you know, where are you? What's your status? It's really, um, there are different grounds for rating you. Are you witty? Um, do you know how to hold your, your own? Um, there's a whole different set of criteria on which you're rated in a pub. And I think that offers a whole other identity and possibility for people. Um, I think, yes, this has changed a bit. And I think maybe uh, more in Dublin than in the country. You know, I still think in the country, it's very much on that. Um, you know, so if you're, if you've any chance, if you're, you know, quick off the mark and, you know, you can point to something and I think that is always held. I love this idea, very Irish idea of um, the notion, you know, we'll rob you of your notions, but we will really enjoy doing it. <laughs> and we'll give you a lot of kudos if you, if you, you know, the further you can bring somebody down from their notions, the better you're going to be liked. And that's the scale. And that's what you'll be rated on. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Jack and Moon Young, loads of questions coming in and I'm going to ask as many of them as I can get to. One question I wanted to put to both of you uh, really was as you were talking about traditional music and music, Clancy Brothers and so on, and also kind of theatre and, and the, the spectacle of the pub on stage. I kept on thinking that in some ways you could argue that the pub or our, our idea of the pub is very much trapped in a mid 20th century nostalgia feedback loop. You could make that argument, I think about music and I think you can make it about theatre but I, I'm going to ask you whether you think that's the case or whether I'm, I'm mischaracterizing that. Uh, Moon Young I might put it to you first sorry. Um, I think coming from a more outsider perspective um, the 20th century version of the pub seems like the most commodifiable um, and I think apparently there is no authentic Irish pub it's quite an imported re-imported um, after it's been exported. Um, so I find that an interesting question um, that I don't feel have the life experiences to back up, um, but yes, for sure. John. Jack, what about music? Um, I, I mean, I think the, the first thing that comes to mind is just that, you know, I think it absolutely is trapped in a kind of a mid 20th century idea. I mean, which is in itself trapped in a kind of a 19th century idea, most of the pubs, but, one of the things is that 
you get the sentence repeated about cafes and pubs uh, of the past, like, you know, like Bewley's or like, you know, your local pub. Oh, you could sit there the whole day and just have one thing and no one would bother you. And I think in a time when like absolutely everything is a relentless process of extracting value from you. And, you know, if you want to sit down, you have to buy a coffee. If you want to, you know, do anything, you have to have some kind of transaction. I think there is something attractive to the idea of a pub where you can just get one point and stay forever, even if in reality, you probably wouldn't do that. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, I've, I've got a question here. Jack, I'm going to stay with you because I think there's a quick question you can answer. Uh, it's from Eve Patton and she asks, can you answer a really controversial question on Irish pub etiquette? Are you allowed to be quiet when trad musicians are playing in your local or can you keep talking? There, let's see. Uh, I would be a purist in that you should probably shut up. Uh, unless you're <laughs> trying to join in. Say it like it is. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Well, you get a straight answer around here. That's great. Um, a quick question I, I'll put to Karen Wallace and Trish Murphy from Dermot Cawley. What do the panel think about the rise of faux pubs in Ireland? Um, so, you know, sort of particularly some of them that have cropped up in Dublin city centre of late. They're relatively new establishments. They present a, an old world rural setting through signage, name and a door and the furnishings and so on. It's become a sort of a domestic phenomenon as well as a global one. What do you think? Is this a valuable ode to the real thing or a terrible, crass commercial uh, abomination? I don't think it's crass abomination. Look, I think that, um, you know, we do this because we have a sense that it'll create something and it's the people who will create it. So if you get a local group of people, do you remember, I don't know if you've ever had this, when you walk in and you give the nod to the barman because he knows what you want. God, you feel like you've arrived. So I think if, um, you know, the chances are it's probably serving a very roaming community that, you know, probably that won't happen in. So um, the people who want that will find their pub someplace else. But I still think it's an effort to create a space for people and fair juice to them for trying it. And if we don't like it, it's going to die anyway. So let them have a go. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. And I think going back to the linking that to the mid 20th century loop question from earlier on, take the alternative if you had a pub which is right up to the minute i mean i can think of bars which are like maybe a new hotel and it has a bar that's opened and everything is brand new flash latest design latest interior completely different feel to it and it might be much more transient but if you have something which is even if it's faux it's faux to create an atmosphere so it is kind of paying homage to the atmosphere that's created in a pub that's brought in by the people and um, but i i agree with Trish. i think you might see those in the city center where there's a transient population you're not going to see a faux pub it wouldn't be worth the while making it in the suburbs or in a county town somewhere they'll be the real thing so i think they yeah they're a homage i think they're a compliment for uh, imitation of the sincerest form of flattery yeah yeah Sticking with you, Kirogs, I have a question in from Chris Marash just to ask you a kind of technical question. When the 18th century tavern becomes the public house, like when does that transition happen? And a follow up from, from another member of the public saying, you know, what about the place of the Shibim, which, of course, ironically, has made a real, a real reappearance in the COVID era. Yeah. Uh, do, do you have any, any comment about when taverns die out? Oh, Lord, um, I don't know the date when I mean there's a technical moment when the when the licenses uh, licensing regime changes and I know I've looked at stuff in the middle and late 19th century about licenses being renewed and being objected to in police courts and things but I couldn't tell you the exact 
I think it probably the tavern might be this. Uh, this is my guess that the tavern might be a, a sort of a traditionally licensed place that was always licensed. Whereas I think the the nineteenth century is much more about regulation, and you have to have your name painted above the door as your licensed vintner. And that licensing machinery, I imagine, came in. I would think. I, I, can we open the correction on this in the sort of first quarter of the 19th century? It sounds like the type of time where they'd be doing that sort of thing, where they're regulating society or trying to regulate society at the same time as your uh, uh, Shibin was taken off because it's a response to regulation. Um, the, the unofficial pub is a response to, to regulation. But I'd, I'd, I'd have to go and check my notes to give a date on that. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> Sorry, Moon Young, did you want to come in there? Yeah. yeah, like according to some of the research, um, I think Elizabeth Malcolm has a good. Uh, article on it, but in 17th century is when the different drinking establishments, so inn was place offering lodgings for travelers and tavern was a wine merchant and ale houses is where it basically was. I think it's the 17th century when all these drinking establishments become kind of mixed up and now they're referred to as like in general and legal terms as public houses. And then they get abbreviated in the Victorian uh, period in 19th century. So. Yeah, and it's really good. There's some brilliant online maps now where you can go around. There's fire insurance maps for late 19th century Dublin where you can see just the, the spread and ubiquity of public houses. They're always marked on those maps, PH. You'll see them, each building. It's a, we might just find a, a link and send it around. That reminds me, in fact, we intend to send a little reading list around to anybody who'd be interested in. There's lots of questions flooding in about from people who want to learn more about the Irish pub and to read some scholarship on it. And that's really great. I have a tricky question here, and I think it's worth asking because it's a sort of a counterpoint to some of what we've been talking about in terms of glamorization, the positive aspects of the pub. And it's from Niall Hannan. And he, he asks, sort of coming from Trish's talk, asking about you know the pub being a sanctuary and a place, you know, resource for people who were, um, who needed to be understood, needed to be heard and so on. But he says there's also another side to it. I'm just paraphrasing the question here where the pub can also be a place that gives a forum to violent or hateful people. Um, you know, there are lots of negative aspects to the pub as it develops. Women were sort of, you know, kept out of it for so long and so on. You know, do we have any response to you? Is there a problem with us glamorizing the Irish, the, the, the place of the Irish pub? And in fact, there, it is also the scene of lots of the ills of society, if you like. Trisha, I might give that to you if, you, if you're willing. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, um, and I, I think, you know, anywhere there's going to be lots of drink, you're going to get that, that slippage into all kinds of stuff. Um, I suppose I think a properly run pub will, will manage that very carefully, will anticipate and, and move people on and do, you know, do all that. But it is true that, like, for example, um, during COVID, pubs are open for a very short time and people behave very well. But when they were on their third drink, all that slipped, you know, and they began to cross over tables and all kinds of things. So there is no doubt about that. Um, and I would think that... Um, you know, it, it's really important that if you do have a pub that it's properly monitored and run. Um, and I remember, I, I could almost tell you the moment, there was a moment when uh, we had somebody who was being incredibly rude um, in the bar to, to a young um, bartender. And my brother finally dawned on him. He said, we don't have to put up with this. And he grabbed him, he put his stake back down on the table and said, out. And everybody in the bar cheered. Um, and it was that moment when you realize that customer service is about all the people and that it's just as important to them to get that person out as it is to you. So it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, but of course, anywhere there is drink, um, there is that slippage. 
And that's always, you know, there is that edge that can happen. And um, I think you need to be ready for that and be able to monitor it and manage it. So you're absolutely right, of course. And that's where I learned those skills uh, uh, the hard way. That's your conflict management part of the that's whole thing. Well, good. Management. I mean, I'm, I'm, we're out of time, which means I can't ask everybody which pub they'd most like to go to uh, if we could uh, break out for a Friday afternoon, as so many of Kieran Wallace's uh, cartoons seem to recommend we should. Unfortunately, we're out of time. So I just want to draw the event to a close. Um, I want to thank uh, just a couple of people before I do that. Martina Mullen and Trinity Health, who suggested this topic and theme to us. I want to reiterate my constant thanks to the brilliant uh, Long Room Hub events team, Francesca, Aoife and Emily. Uh, and of course, to applaud the brilliance on behalf of the hundreds of people who tuned in of our four speakers. Uh, a forthcoming event at the Hub that might be of interest to our audience today will be the next Out of the Ashes lecture series uh, on the 22nd of March at 7pm with Professor Ana Lucia Arujo from Howard University. She'll speak about the death of the National Museum of Brazil, slavery, heritage on the edge. But thank you so much for tuning in today. I've learned an awful lot about the public house. Uh, as many people in our comments section and Q&A have noted, it'd give you an awful thirst to listen to these four presentations. And on that note, we'll will say a very good afternoon to you all. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Taimoria Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.